You're listening to the North American Francophone Podcast, hosted in English by Claire-Marie Brisson and proudly recorded in Charlottesville, Virginia. Welcome to Episode 5 of the North American Francophone Podcast. I'm your host, Claire-Marie. And today, I'm going to take you through a journey of how Francophone populations in North America adapted to harsher climates and kept warm. When I was growing up in Metro Detroit, there was one thing I could count on in the winter. Snow. And lots of it. I remember one of my first memories as a kid was stepping out the door putting my boot into the snow, and then seeing it fall all the way down to the ground. There had to have been at least one or two feet of snow, and as a child, it seemed like it went on forever. But then I realized you could have a lot of fun with snow. Tobogganing, making snow angels, making snowmen, it was a great time. And it made me who I am. I expected it every single winter, starting from around October, November, and all the way into sometimes March or April. It might surprise some listeners to know that I actually had snow on my birthday one year, and I'm born April 26th. And I remember another year, we had snow in June. Now, this is no surprise for anyone who lives in a very cold climate, but it is very surprising to my new friends here in Virginia when I tell them about it. I remember telling my friends here a little story about the second semester of the first year of my master's program when I had to drive down to Wayne State University from my home in a blizzard to teach for the first day of classes as a graduate teaching assistant. What normally was a 15-minute commute was almost two hours long. When I arrived in the classroom, there were a couple of students who were already there, but many were late and very upset. When I compare that story with how I saw University of Virginia close with only about three to four inches of snow on the ground, I was taken aback a little bit. In comparison to many of my neighbors here, I was totally fine with the snow. I was actually very excited about it. But everyone else here was stocking up on bread and milk. The schools closed right away. People were staying off the roads. But I was fine and I took the day off and drove to the store and had a great time. But again, this shows that people become very comfortable with their environments. And when they have to go to another environment, it often takes a little bit of effort to acclimate fully to a new environment if you've been living somewhere for a long time, as is my case. The summers here in Virginia are my winters. They're far too hot and far too humid, and I certainly am not accustomed to that. Even though I've been living here since 2016, I have a hard time adjusting. My own experience moving here made me think about the Francophone settlers who came to the New World in North America and how their experiences might have been. As an example, France is much more of a temperate climate. In many ways, I've compared living here in Virginia to when I lived in the south of France. The climate is very similar, although here has much more humidity. I'm not the first person to observe this, though. Even Thomas Jefferson wrote in 1787 that Italy is a field where the inhabitants of the southern states may see much to copy in agriculture. And he lived right here, in Charlottesville. When I read those words, I thought about the French settlers who came across the Atlantic and moved to the New World. What were their expectations? 
Had anyone read Voltaire at that time, they would notice that he had mocked Canada's very cold climate. In Voltaire's 1759 work Candide, he makes his two journeyers talk to one another, and travel companions say to one another, You have been to England, said Candide. Are they as mad as there in France? And the response is, It's a different type of madness, Martin says. As you know, the two countries are at war over a few acres of snow on the Canadian border, and they are spending rather more on their lovely war than the whole of Canada is worth. Despite Voltaire's glowing review of Canada, there was nothing stopping French people from moving across the Atlantic to the New World. These settlers came to the New World wearing the French fashions of the day, wigs and lace, fancy fabrics and heeled shoes. But soon, these settlers realized that they couldn't wear the same things that they wore back in France. This is why more utilitarian garb became the norm, and much of it was influenced by First Nations peoples who were living alongside the French presence in North America. The French Canadians, for example, had leather attire that included footwear with the sort of moccasin shape. Now, these are called souliers, or they're called bottes and leather or fabric leggings that would go with it. Oftentimes they have fringe, and much of that is shared with the First Nations clothing traditions. These were clothes that lent themselves well to work, but also to the climate in North America. It allowed for people to remain warm, to work easily, but also to protect oneself from the elements, as well as some of the poisonous plants that may have existed in areas where they were working. These settlers, or habitants, as they're known in French, would often be part of the fur trade as well, and were known as coureurs de bois, quite literally translated as wood runners, because they worked a lot with the fur trade, but also the production and manufacture of lumber. These coureurs de bois were in competition with people called voyageurs, or travelers, and the voyageurs were actually licensed. They could bring goods to different trading posts, and they were legally able to do so. Whereas the coureurs de bois, more or less independently and somewhat illegally at the time, if you think about the laws that were set in place by the Hudson Bay Company, or the way that France wanted things to run in the New World. But we can be very grateful for the coureurs de bois, because they explored North America, creating maps, but they also established important trading contacts with the First Nations peoples. These contacts were not solely commercial. They also were learning how the First Nations peoples had thrived on this land for generations. And they would soon learn that many of the things that the First Nations were wearing were important for their survival. Let's go back to the moccasin, for example. When you think of a moccasin, you might be thinking of a modern-day shoe that might be sold by L.L. Bean, the really comfy kind with sheepskin on the inside. It's very warm. But this was not at all what the First Nations were wearing. In fact, they were wearing soft-soled moccasins, and they were often made of a single piece of leather. These were a very effective piece of footwear if you're traveling through forests and you're going up and down on roots and different pieces of bark. It actually leverages them and allows you to step on things like pine cones without really getting hurt too much, and you're able to travel quickly. The other thing that soft-soled moccasins can do is they can slip easily into snowshoes. 
this would become very useful for those coureurs de bois and eventually the voyageurs to move rapidly through the snow without falling through. If you've ever seen hard-soled moccasins, those really are not from the eastern part of North America. Those are more for flat land, also desert climates, places that have hard soil or maybe even prairie grass. So it wasn't the kind of moccasin that the First Nations people would be using and trading with the French settlers at this time. As Francophone peoples eventually started moving westward toward modern-day Alberta and Manitoba, they would encounter people who were wearing mukluks. And what a mukluk is, it's a high, soft boot, it's worn in the Arctic, and it's traditionally made from seal skin, but some other variants will also include this sort of tanned leather. Traditional mukluks were great for winter use, but these were usually worn by First Nations peoples in the western and Arctic areas of what is modern-day Canada. The voyageurs and the coureurs de bois would wear sashes around their waist and leg ties to keep themselves nice and warm. These brightly woven sashes and leg ties also had another purpose to keep your pants dry when you're getting out of a canoe. Now, this is very important, especially as it's becoming colder and colder. I remember my parents always telling me to dry off once I came back inside, having played outside in the snow. And if you're in a canoe in colder weather just before it's freezing, you don't want to stay cold and wet. The sash around the waist is known as a ceinture fléchée, or in English, an arrowed sash, because the way that it's woven looks like it has little arrows in it. The voyageur would take the piece of fabric and wrap it using a triangle method at their hip, wrapping it around the waist, and then wrapping it again a second time to make sure that it was nice and tight. Then you'd take your hand through the wrapped sash, grab the tassels, and make sure to pull the tassels through. That would allow for this ceinture fléchée to rest evenly and beautifully around the waist. And after all of this is put on, there's only one thing that's missing from the voyageur's outfit. A hat. Try to picture what Scrooge looks like in your head. Wearing his nightgown and nightcap. That long nightcap is actually a part of the French North American history. It's called a tuque. It's a knitted winter hat. I think sometimes in English... It can be called a watch cap because when you say nightcap, many times people think of a drink. So it can be called a beanie, a watch cap. And these tuques were worn outside and often inside to go to bed as well. This term is even used in modern Canadian English. If you say a toque or a toque, you're describing a winter hat. Now just think of a common, typical, knitted, pullover winter hat or beanie. Both the tuque and the ceinture fléchée are often used as cultural signifiers by French Canadians to represent their material past history. You'll be able to see the ceinture fléchée and the tuque if you go to the Carnaval de Québec. There's a bonhomme or a snowman who walks around and he's wearing the ceinture fléchée and he wears the tuque atop his head. And what's funny is that so many of my former students have told me that when they think of French Canada, they immediately envision that snowman with the tuque and the ceinture fléchée. It looks like the marketing is going very well with that. But in any event, that's not the only thing that the voyageur or the coureur de bois would wear. They would also wear the three-cornered hats that were common at the time, 
and they were often trimmed with feathers. And of course, to show off the spoils of their hunts, many of the voyageurs would wear fur hats in order to show off the skills of their trade. And of course, for the cold, cold winters, one of the essential things to wear was a coat. The capot was usually made from a very thick, gray, homespun wool. And eventually, these were made out of blankets. This is interesting for me to see because there is actually a trend of people taking old blankets, usually they have some kind of a tapestry pattern, and turning them into coats. This is precisely what Francophone North Americans were doing in the 1700s. They were taking blankets and turning them into coats. And by the 1770s and 1780s, they're buying the coats from the Hudson Bay Company and are transforming them into coats and hooded coats that they can wear. Once French North Americans, and specifically French Canadians, started using these blankets, they went from being a gray color to a multicolor. The blankets were white and blue, and the coats eventually were white, they had blue near the hemline, and then they also had blue to match, usually around the sleeves. This became such a large trend that it actually began to identify the Francophone populations in Canada. And many people even today think of blue and white when they think of the Francophone Canadian population. Of course, this is owing to the Fleur de Lisée or the Quebec flag. It doesn't represent all of Francophone Canadians, but many people do think of blue and white as being traditionally the colors of Francophones in Canada. Aside from the clothing traditions, there were also food traditions that Francophone Canadians had and still have when the weather was cold. For example, a lot of people would heat up their homes with a fireplace and then cook over it, making some nice warming soups. They would also make things like tourtière, which is French-Canadian meat pie. It's made from a combination of different meats. It depends on the region. I don't want to offend anyone if I don't mention your regional meats. But it can include rabbit or pork, beef, veal. All of this mixed together. It's then seasoned and put into a pie mold with some crust on the outside. Think about something like a chicken pot pie. That's really what the final product is going to look like. It's going to have a top to it sides made out of pastry, and the inside is a hearty meat. Sometimes they would add some vegetables to it, some potatoes. Much more of the modern recipes will include more vegetables in the tourtière, but originally it was a very heavy meat dish, often served with a brown gravy. Delicious, but also effective in keeping people well-fed in the wintertime and warm outside because you're burning off all of that fat and you have a lot of protein. And there's also a drink that's associated with the cold. It's called caribou. It comes from the Micmac, which means the person who crosses the snow. And caribou is a drink that's made of red wine and hard liquor. The thing that I could compare it to is Glühwein from Germany. And in English, we call it mold wine. Some people have said that in the past it was a mixture of caribou blood and whiskey that was used by hunters and loggers to keep warm, but I don't know if there are any resources that point to that actually being what it was in the past. But if you order caribou today in Quebec, for example, you're not going to get any caribou blood, I promise you that. You're going to get red wine, probably whiskey, and maple syrup and a little bit of sugar that's mixed together. It's nice and warm, and it's the perfect winter drink to have. 
Now, if you don't like whiskey, you can also change it out for brandy or for rum. Just take around four ounces of whiskey, brandy, or rum, whatever you prefer. Mix it together with some red wine, usually around eight ounces, so double the amount of whiskey or hard liquor that you're using. Add in about three ounces or less of maple syrup, a cinnamon stick if you want to, a little bit of nutmeg if you want to, and just heat that up over medium heat, boil it for a little bit, just gently, and then stir it, and then pour it into glasses that can handle heat. And if you try it, why don't you tweet me a photo of it? My username is at the underscore francophone on Twitter for this podcast, or you can search the North American Francophone Podcast on Facebook and send us a photo. I'd love to see it. Now, I'd like to switch gears a little bit here to finish off the episode for today, and I want to draw your attention to something that probably has been in the back of your mind through this episode, the idea of how cold it was. As scientific data is showing, we are warming up. Our planet is warming up. And if we think about what the French-speaking populations were encountering once they moved to North America, it was not at all what we experience today. In fact, there was something called the Little Ice Age going on. It was a period between about 1300 to around 1870, and Europe and North America were subjected to very cold temperatures. I mean, much colder winters than what we saw in the 20th century and now in the 21st century. The Little Ice Age can be to blame for what Napoleon's troops experienced once they came to Russia, and, of course, what those people were experiencing once they moved from France to North America. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has said that there was modest cooling of the Northern Hemisphere during what we call the Little Ice Age, but there is no evidence to date saying that this was a global phenomenon, but it was apparent in the research done on the Northern Hemisphere during the period. Many theories have been put forth about why the Little Ice Age happened. Some people would say that it was increased volcanic activity. Some people would say that more people were moving around at this point, and there were decreases in the human population, specifically from the Black Death. But there is no one root cause of why the Little Ice Age happened. And I won't get too scientific, because that is not my realm whatsoever. I advise that if you are interested in historical climate change or shifts in climate change, that you look for sources that may be a little bit more scientific and speak to that in that way. However, as a historian, I am very interested in thinking about what kind of historical climate observations existed at this time period and how that affected the daily life of people who were moving from their respective places in Europe to North America. So I started digging a little bit online, and I found a paper published in the Geoscience Data Journal that was called Historical Climate Observations in Canada, 18th and 19th Century Daily Temperature from the St. Lawrence Valley, Quebec. It's written by someone named Victoria Solonofsky, fascinating article because it tells us that aside from knowing that it was cold, there were daily observations being taken in the province of Quebec, also in other parts of Canada, I presume, but this is specifically an article that talks about Quebec. These observations range from 1742 
all the way up until 1873. And the frequency is kind of interesting to take a look at. The first person who was really establishing the observations, daily continuous instrumental observations of Canadian weather were those of Jean-François Gautier, who was writing them down from 1742 to 1756. And then there were other observations that were written at the same time, more or less, by the Hudson's Bay Company, but these, again, were not written in French. And then the long-term consistent weather record kind of stops after Gautier ends in 1756 and are picked up again in Quebec City in the 1790s. So that means there is a window of time where there is nobody taking daily instrumental observations, but you can see that more or less, there is a record from early French settlement of North America. And I just want to repeat myself, I am not at all a climate scientist, nor do I have any authority to speak scientifically on these things. But as a historian, I can see that the historical climatological observations in comparison to modern data have some kind of overlap. And I'm sure that there is a way to establish whether historical and modern observations of data collection can be compared to one another. The readings might not be as accurate from the older data simply because the earliest observations were recorded at a time when the instruments used to collect temperature were very experimental. So whether or not they were actually collecting the correct data is another question. But let's speak culturally for just a second. If we think about Gautier observing the weather in Quebec at the time, he would be using things that had been invented in his home country. And indeed he was. He was using a thermometer that was used by l'Observatoire Royal de Paris at the time. And the scale used by l'Observatoire de Paris was adjusted for the type of weather that was prevalent in France. He would then have to take his thermometer, and adjust it to the Canadian weather. In fact, the first time he wanted to take the temperature in Quebec in the winter, it had no reading because it was off the scale of his thermometer, which I find to be very comical, but it shows you what he was facing. Gautier eventually expanded the thermometer so it had temperature readings for the cold conditions he was experiencing in Quebec, And by 1754, he was using an alcohol-based thermometer that allowed him to record temperatures below minus 38 degrees Celsius, which is the freezing point of mercury. Although the readings from mercury-based thermometers are much more consistent, if you were living in Quebec at this time, you were not going to get a reading with it. And so eventually there was an invention that combined spirits along with mercury so that you could have a minimum and maximum available to you in both. And I'm actually going to quote the author of this research, Victoria Slonowski, whose research points to the sociological and historical context of what life would have been like at this time and what temperatures French peoples and Francophone peoples in North America would have experienced where they were living. Slonowski's research is actually going to point to some interesting facts and some things that provide questions for the future. She mentions again that Jean-François Gautier was a physician in the French colony of Quebec in New France from 1742 to 1756, 
and his daily recorded readings indicate that the Little Ice Age did have some effects in what is modern-day Quebec, but also some climate variability in eastern North America as well, upstream of the North Atlantic. She notes that, and I'm quoting here, During the 1740s, winters appear to have been milder than during most of the 20th century, with the exception of the 1950s and early 1980s, and summers warmer than those of the 20th century, with the exception of the 1970s and 1990s. Autumns and springs appear to have been cool relative to the 20th century, suggesting that while winters may have been milder, the winter season lasted much longer, with a consequently shorter growing season. The cool springs and autumns, combined with warm winters and summers, gave these few years in the 1740s annual average temperatures comparable to those averaged over the 20th century. The annual average temperatures mask marked seasonal differences. There is also some evidence that the climate was drier than in recent times, with fewer precipitation days than during the 1970-2000 to 2000 period. And she also notes, quote, Although it is not easy and sometimes not possible to adjust historical data to conform to modern standards, some adjustments can be made to account for the likely impacts of more primitive instruments and different observing practices than those in use today. It seems likely that the thermometer Gautier was using was either hung on an outside wall of his house or placed near a window of an unheated room. As the thermometer regularly gave readings below minus 20 degrees Celsius, and as the socioeconomic conditions of life in New France made the luxury of an unused room improbable, with such cold temperatures, it would be impossible to carry out any daily tasks in an unheated room in winter, or even to record the temperature readings, as water and ink would have been frozen solid, exposure on an outside north-facing wall was likely where the author put the thermometer. So with all that being said, some of the ideas that we have about the past in Francophone North America may be very accurate. It probably was very cold, but it might not have been as bitter and harsh of a cold as we felt in the 20th and 21st century. It probably was more of a prolonged cold spell. And as you heard the author say, it was probably difficult to grow anything in that type of climate. This can account for a lot of the practices of Francophone North Americans, the type of food they were eating, the type of clothing that they were sharing with the First Nations, and also how their lives revolved around hunting their food and conserving that food so that they could eat it when times were hard and maybe fresh food was scarce. And finally, to close our podcast episode for today, you may have noticed that in the title it says Il fait fret. You might be more familiar with Il fait froid, right? You've heard that before if you speak some French. It's cold outside. But the Canadian French variant is Il fait fret. Il fait fret. So repeat that today, and that's your little French tidbit of the day. And thanks so much for stopping by and listening to the North American Francophone Podcast. Your support means a lot to me. 
This podcast is really my passion. I'm sharing a lot of things that I'm doing for my dissertation research at the University of Virginia, but I'm also sharing some things that I just come across when I'm researching and the people and voices that can share things that I personally can't. If you'd like to support me, visit thefrancophone.com. There's a Patreon button there. There's also a PayPal button. I now also have mugs in stock and stickers. If you'd like to support me there, please stop by, share what you can, and of course, enjoy the episode. If you can't share anything, at least you're gaining something, and that is the history and joy of the North American Francophone world. Until next time, take care, and especially after this episode, stay warm! <laughs>